Are you happy to be here? Amen. I'm happy to be here. And, uh, although after Henry's class on expository listening, it's convicting because he's been teaching us for the past month or two or three, I forget, um, that we need to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So I hope in a little while when Pastor opens us in prayer that you take time to prepare your hearts to to listen to what's being preached and sung and read because we're responsible for it. And trust God that his Holy Spirit will move in your heart to obey it and not reject it. Some announcements. You will need a uh, song sheet. They're on the back. So uh, if Julie is getting it, could you make sure that everybody has it? So raise your hands if you need one of these. I need one. Thank you. I saw that hand. And just some announcements. Um, Youth choir today, right after the service in the apartment building, in the newly refurbished youth choir room. So when... uh, Amber wants something done. She just knows how to get her done. It's missions in July, if you haven't noticed. And while you're pondering scripture, one, two, three, four, the fifth flag in from that light, it is not Bahrain. It's a different country. So you might want to think about what country that is and pray for the people there in Qatar. Oh, I let it slip. Um, If you want to give an offering to missions, you can designate it on the memo portion or take one of the offering, but we're taking up offerings for missions, so just put for missions on there. And if you're visiting, we do not pass the plate. Uh, We stopped that practice three years ago, but there is a a cool gold-plated offering box in the back and Dorothy is our helper that brings it downstairs immediately after the service so if you're delinquent you need to run back there before she gets it like she did last week and just is getting her done too you're like Amber getting it done Um, you can look at the rest of the announcements and pay attention to the catechism too that's very helpful did I miss anything? Did the choir and did we talk about it? Yeah, we talked about okay, the choir. I wasn't listening. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So much, Henry, for your lesson on expository listening. But a man's got to know what's important to listen to, so. Okay. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I'm not always this serious, but... I'm actually a very serious person, ask Gail, but there's something about coming here where we're brothers and sisters founded on the word of God, a true love for Jesus Christ, and in a sense, we're a spiritual family. And that just, I've been in enough lousy churches, you know, even some I've pastored. Um, To me, this is an oasis where we can come together in a safe place Um, to love on each other, to serve each other, because we're all here to serve, but also to be fed from God's word, whether it's through great hymns and singing 
prayers, the reading of God's word, or the preaching of God's word. If you've gone on vacation and you've, you've looked at church websites and said, oh, this sounds like a good church, like Gail and I did out in Utah, even the pastor got up. He says, I preach expositorily. That means I go through verse by verse through the sacred scripture. That was the last he approached on. He talked for 10 minutes on a movie he saw. And we came out of there thinking, you had God's word. You said you were going to go through it line by line, word by word, and explain and apply its meaning to us. And you talked about an R-rated movie. How sad. It's not that way here. We have a pastor that takes seriously the teaching of God's word. And I just love being here for that. So let's transition to our scripture reading, Mark chapter 7. This is God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men and he Jesus said to them you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition for Moses said honor your father and mother and Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. That is quite an indictment. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when, they had entered, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these things come from within, and they defile a person. Thank you, Andy, for sharing that reading. That's the preaching of Christ this morning for us to consider. Take a moment to think on his word, to prepare your heart then to respond and worship in spirit and truth. I'll give you a moment to prepare your heart now, and then I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's go to the Lord privately in prayer to prepare our hearts to worship Christ today. Father, we come to you today to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Father, that we would not honor you just with our lips, honor you externally by filling various traditions and expectations that uh, we, we think will bring about praise, but truly from the heart. Might we be obedient from the heart, a desire to please you in all things. We don't want to worship you in vain. We want to worship you in reality and in truth. And so I pray, Father, that indeed we would be able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that we would recognize the evil within our own hearts, that which we wrestle with even on this side of regeneration, that sin that, that still remains, that will be dealt with, but that we must wrestle with in the power of the Spirit even this day. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit we will truly think on those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable in your sight. I pray the degree that we stray from that, that you will convict our hearts to draw us closer to you, that these might be really the expressions of our heart. We pray, Father, by the power of the Spirit, through the instrumentality of your word, that we might be continually conf be conformed to the image of your Son, who is holy and just and righteous. In and of ourselves, we certainly are not, Lord, and so we need the, the, your strength. We need the power of the gospel to work out salvation in our life with fear and trembling. I, I pray, Father, that, again, you, you would enable us to grow in that grace and that knowledge. I pray, Father, that we as a church, as we gather together, that we would encourage one another to these very things, that we might be more characteristic of those things that are of the character of Christ. May, may we see even Christ in, in us, the, the hope of glory, 
and may it overflow into the lives of the people that we're engaged with on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's at, at work or play or anywhere in between the regular duties of household and maintenance and things that we must do uh, and the various responsibilities that we have. I pray, Father, that we would walk in truth, that we would walk in wisdom and do so not through the power of the flesh but through the power of the Spirit. Give us great joy as we sing praises to your holy name. Maybe, may those things be uh, what would bring about honor and praise to you. I pray that you would receive them from, as, a, as our simple heart's expression of joy to you. And I pray that we would indeed experience the fullness of joy that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand together and sing to our Heavenly Father by turning to number 88. And we'll sing the beautiful hymn, Abide With Me. Luke 15, 4 says, Remain in me and I in you. The second verse, when we come to it, that'll be women only. Number 88.
singing. Let's turn to number 561. Deep in my heart there's a gladness. Why do I sing about Jesus? Psalm 28.7, my heart leaps for joy. And I will give thanks to him in song. As we think about this hymn and we get to the chorus, think about why do you sing about Jesus? And why is he precious to you? inserts as we go back to singing our psalms and psalm 92 one thing to mention on here uh, on this on the second line on this on the second verse it says it looks like it says i low great your works O lord i low great your thoughts but that's not i low it says how so how great your works O lord how deep your thoughts so don't miss that and i also wanted to mention that this psalm is a song of praise. In fact, uh, in the English Standard Version, I think our, uh, the title of this psalm says, A Song for the Sabbath. And they used to sing this on the Sabbath. It's a song of praise, praise for God's works, especially works of creation, providence, and redemption. John Calvin said, This, is, this psalm contains an exhortation to praise God and to show how much ground we have for this exercise from the works of God, insisting especially upon his justice displayed in the protection of his people and the destruction of the wicked. John Gill says it was made for the Sabbath day and to be used upon it and directs to the work and worship of it, praising of God and celebrating his works. And then lastly, Luther at the bottom here says, Oh, what is sweeter than to know God aright by his word and by true faith? To acknowledge his infinite mercies, 
to give thanks unto him joyfully and adoringly with every chord and string of our hearts, to proclaim and praise him unceasingly with a full heart and a full mouth. We have nothing but sin and its consequence misery except as a fruit of his bounty, bounty and compassion. And so as we sing these, these psalms, it's important for us to sing these. Uh, a recent book by uh, Doug Wilson, he has a, a passage here. It says, in the face of the kind of evil that is abroad in the world, evangelical Christians need to stop filling their worship services with sentimental treacle and to start worshiping biblically in a very dark world. We are confronted with a great and growing evil, and we are discovering that we do not have the liturgical vocabulary to respond to it appropriately at all. When we sing or pray the Psalms, all of them, there are two consequences that should be mentioned. One, we are praying in the will of God, and he hears such prayers. Second, we discover that praying and singing biblically transforms us. This really is the need of the hour. So let's, as we think about that, let's have that mindset as we sing through this thankful uh, praise psalm, Psalm 92, uh, and you should know the, the, the song. Go ahead.
Good morning, church. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. You can find this on the Pew Bible if you wish on pages 919, continuing on into 920. Reminders are a good thing. The passage we'll be reading today is a review of what we read in chapter 10 just the previous Sunday. That being the events surrounding several Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit just as the apostles had at the beginning of this book. As Peter recounts these events, the conclusion that his listeners come to is this. Then to, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance leading to life. <clears throat> if you hear this today and you're not walking with the Lord, repent of your sins. Believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved from the wrath to come that will be poured out on all unrighteousness. Please read with me now, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let us pray. Father, you are full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love. You have chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the things that are not to shame the things that are. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory but you laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. 
Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit now through the preaching of your message, your glorious word. May the offerings given today serve to further your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I lift up all the pastors and churches in the AIT network, including our own. May we be bold in love, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Please help us to worship your wonderful name this hour. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 620. We'll sing Jesus is the song. I love singing this song whenever we come around to it again. Beautiful words throughout it. 620.
that him anticipates that Christ is indeed engaged with us right now to give you a song in your heart. And we'll learn from the preaching of the Hebrew, in Hebrews from this preacher that indeed Christ continues even now in this role, imminent, among us, functioning as a mediator between God and man, making intercession even now in the heavenly places. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll continue where we left off last time. One of the troubles that I have, we're going through this, and I hope it doesn't seem to be overly repetitious to you, but we're following the text. And the preacher here in Hebrews begins by emphasizing the glory of Jesus Christ. He's going to hit this highlight point in chapter 8 about Jesus Christ, that being the very point the central theme of his message. He is indeed our great high priest, our mediator. And in, in the context here to his audience, immediately the argument was made because they had a desire, some of them, to go back to the traditions to which they were used to. The traditions that we read about here in Mark chapter 7 earlier. That was their culture, that was their life and lifestyle, and many of them who had come to Christ then had to leave all of those rituals, those aspects, those traditions, in their case, of washings and certain things they were supposed to do, certain things they were not supposed to do, and they had a desire to go back to that kind of thing and and leave Christ. And this preacher emphasizes if you go away from Christ, you're going to go to a path that leads to destruction, that leads to death, that will not lead to flourishing or fulfillment. And by way of application, as I've mentioned, it, it, you say, well, I'm not going to Judaism, fine. It's the culture of the day. It's the traditions of men, whatever they might be. The point is to make Jesus Christ, the central point, he, he is the, the mark by which we measure all things. And hence, one of the statements that we make in our agreement with the Reformers is solus Christus, that is, that is Christ alone. This is, this is the, the measuring stick. This is how we find out if we indeed are a crooked stick. We look to that which is straight And it is Jesus Christ. And the point is, there is no other. Him and him alone. He begins here, chapter 8, the point that we're making is this. And sometimes it takes a while for a preacher to make a point. Actually, he's making it all along and just reminding them because they weren't listening that close. Remember, he said, "You're, you're dull of hearing. By this time, you ought to have been teachers of all of this. And so he chides them a bit for that. But nevertheless, he, he's going to summarize some of these points that he had been making and building, leading up to about Jesus Christ in particular. 
He'll give us some concluding remarks here about Jesus then being the high priest. And so in their case, why, why would you go to any other mediator, any other priest, any other thought or idea? Jesus Christ, he says, is after the order of Melchizedek. It is superior, his order, to that which came before, the Aaronic priesthood. It has an enduring benefit for the believer now and forevermore. That's his point. Jesus, then, would be the better priest. So anything measured against him, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He led up to this, if you look back in verse 26 of the previous chapter, chapter 7, speaking of this one, Jesus Christ, and I might use um, this terminology brought about an expression by Spurgeon, uh, how you can tell whether there's, and I already mentioned it, but I didn't give him credit yet, but I am now, how you can tell whether a... uh, a, a stick, something to that effect, a stick is crooked or straight. You, you hold up the straight one next to the crooked one and you can see. Well, here's the straight stick, so to speak, in verse 26 of chapter 7. We have this high priest who's what? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and then exalted above the heavens. That is Jesus Christ. There is no better. There is no straighter. There is nothing more perfect than him. He is holy, that is, he's absolutely, perfectly set aside above all the rest. That's simply what holy ultimately means, a cut above the rest. He is innocent. There is none among us that is innocent. We are all guilty of something. We have a tendency to measure our guilt by somebody else. Certainly, we can find someone that is more guilty. But the comparison, the straight stick, so to speak, the measuring guide is Jesus Christ, who is absolutely perfect. And beyond that, as he came in taking on human flesh, lived among us, none of that clung to him. That's the idea of being unstained. And then he was distinctly separate from sinners. Oh, yes, he was a friend of sinners. He could be with them, but he was not of them. That's the point. And ultimately, in his current state now, exalted above the heavens. This exaltation, as I mentioned earlier before, this is the reception of the fullness of his glory. He he dwelt among us, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, yet we couldn't see all of that because he was veiled in flesh, if you will. The preacher of Hebrews makes that very clear in the opening chapter. If you remember, I'll read it for you, speaking of Jesus. Who is this one? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every morning, this is why you wake up and recognize his mercy is new every morning, because there's sunshine outside. Because there's air for you to breathe. The only reason any of this exists or any enjoyment that you might have comes through this one, Jesus Christ. He's keeping it from falling apart. There are people, I've said this before, but there are people that are panicked today because they think the, the weather is going to change so much that we're all just going to die or that we're just going to run out of food or there's just going to be too many people and they're anxious for nothing. 
These anxieties should bring you to God to recognize you can't fix it on your own. Yes, be a good steward of all things, certainly. Not suggesting that you don't for a moment. But ultimately, you don't control anything. Christ does. And he does it not by his sweat of his brow, but the word of his power. You understand who this is? Fall down and worship Christ then. He is the glorious God. The glorious God who condescends as a friend of sinners. He redeems. He justifies, that is, declares righteous, and then adopts into his family, and beyond that will clothe us with his righteous robes of glory. This is the transcendent God, who in his grace and mercy and loving kindness desires to be imminently with his people. And he, that God, that radiant God, will call us brothers. God is with us. But not just historically in the past, not just at creation, and not just at Calvary and pain for our sin. But you understand, he, Jesus Christ is with you right now. That's the preacher's He is in the present, mediating right now, mediating as a priest, if you will, after the order of Melchizedek, forever and ever. Let's just look at that in the text, and we'll review where I left off last time, just to pick up another point, and then move forward. We'll begin in chapter 8. The preacher says now, The point in what we're saying is this. Here's the point. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest, that is, speaking of Christ, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, that would be the tabernacle, we're He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Let us pray. Father, I do pray, indeed, we would hear and heed your word. I pray the glory of Christ would radiate through your word to the point that it would bring about great rest in him. May we all find our refuge in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as I alluded to, this book of Hebrews really functions as a, as a sermon. That's at least the way I see it. it. Probably wasn't spoken in this exact way, but it was recorded and recorded for us to read now in days ahead and in the future. This was recorded, the, the, the main points, and, and he gets to this in verse 1 of chapter 8. Here is the 
main point. This is the big idea in a sermon, the theme. We try to do that when we're preaching, is to have a big idea, if you will, a point, <laughs> at least one, and then the subpoints really just emphasize that, just are a way to um, help explain what the big idea here is. And if you miss every, anything else, Jesus is better than anything you could ever imagine, ever give your allegiance to. And so we'll support it then from the text as this preacher unfolds here. He's better than all that came before. He is better than all that could arise afterwards. That's his point. He does so in our text, as we read, at least in the first five verses, because he has a better seat. It's the majesty on high. It's a better sacrifice in comparison to the priestly sacrifice because it's his own blood, Jesus Christ. It is the blood of one who is holy, innocent, unstained, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted in heaven. That's who that sacrifice is. It is Christ. And finally, his continuing work, that is his service. Everything else fails and falls and will never get to the complete. He continues forever. So where would you go? There's nothing better than Christ. No better mediator between God and man. It's better not only in the sense of superior, but as I mentioned, everything else is not just inferior, but it will fall short and ultimately fail. He is the only one, that is Christ, who could satisfy the requirements of a holy God for sinners to be reconciled, to be made saints. I left off last week talking about this throne of God, the majesty on high, verses 1 and 2. And I just want to say one more thing about that and then move forward. Basically, this throne, he says, he, he, is, he is seated here on this throne of God. And I talked about it last week. It says the right hand. And and the point, ultimately, I think, is to demonstrate the authority by which he has. But seated in the heavens and not the right hand, the authority of power, this is one who also continues as a mediator between God and man and has the authority to do so. The imagery here is this idea of seated in power, But in the book of Acts, for example, and you can turn there if you wish. We read this earlier in our reading through the book of Acts. But I think it is an interesting point to recognize, even though in Hebrews it's it's speaking in the sense that that he is seated. Okay, So so he is seated, that is, he is exalted, one who has all authority in heaven, but... There's another aspect of that one who is on the throne, and that is he is in advocacy for his people. And here's a great example that we read through in our reading through the history of the church in the book of Acts. If you remember, here in book of, book of Acts, chapter 
7, you'll have Stephen, for this martyr, and the first martyr in the church there, he's before the people and explaining quite lengthy about Jesus Christ and rebuking the people for not recognizing him as Lord. They wanted to stay with their rituals rather than move forward to the reality. And here, this preacher, in the midst of it, will ultimately give his physical life for proclaiming the truth. Now, you think you have it hard. (laughs) Those who walked before us, the world was not worthy. And here's an example of it. A good man, a godly man. And what was his crime? Preaching Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins of those very people that heard him. And by the way, as we'll read on further, one of those in that audience was a persecutor of the church. His name was Saul. We know him by his conversion name of Paul. You never know what will happen when you preach God's word. You may never live to see the fruits of it, and Stephen is an example, isn't it? He died. He was killed for his faith. He preached. But really what I wanted you to note here, when, when they heard these things, drop down to verse 54. He's told them, you've persecuted and killed everybody who's came before you to tell you the truth. And they've had enough of it. When they heard these things, Acts 7, 54, 7, 54, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. They're really mad. So mad, they're clenching their teeth. Can you feel the fury and anger there? But notice the contrast here with this preacher. Verse 55. But he, speaking to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And this is what I wanted you to see. He's looking at the throne of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's purposely stated this way. It indicates a different aspect of Jesus Christ. Sitting, ruling, reigning in the authority of power on the majesty on high. And here his prophet speaking the truth. One who is full of the Holy Spirit then. Jesus gets up as an advocacy and in that imagery now he's standing standing at the very throne of God. And, and Stephen's response, and he, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's the idea of Jesus Christ in his ministry. Now, nothing gets by without him knowing it. You may think you're alone. And at the height of persecution here, It's going to cost him his physical life. And Jesus is not the imagery of just sitting around not caring. 
You remember, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He knows exactly what's going on with each one of his saints. And he will even use that evil act to bring about great good. Well, we know it here because it it results in the conversion of Saul. Stephen ultimately won't be harmed because he's going to be in the presence of Christ who is standing there and welcoming him home. There's nothing better than that, is it? No better advocate than Jesus Christ. One who will rise up for his people who are engaged all the time. So, so, so now do you, do, you, do you sense the idea of why you shouldn't be anxious for anything? <laughs> but in pray, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God because you have an advocate that is in Jesus Christ. If you're not one of his, you, you, you need to do like Saul did and repent and come to Christ. He is the greatest advocate you could ever have. Back to our text in Hebrews chapter 8. I want to say one more thing. And that is, he is a, the text says, verse 2, a minister. So he's not only seated there in this heavenly throne as an advocate. And I do think this imagery here of standing, engaging, and how does he do it? He's actively engaged in ministering on the behalf of his people right now. If you're in Christ, he's ministering for you. The, the idea of ministry is the image of a servant. It's normally used for someone that has a special, specific task, like a high priest, for example. And so rightly used of Jesus. Even in his exalted position in the heavenlies, right now, even in his fullness of his glory, here he is continuing to act as a servant, a minister for his people. The God who saves is a God who serves. The preacher of Hebrews said in the previous chapter, chapter 725, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, because he is the only one. But he does this, he can save them to the uttermost because he always makes intercession for them. That's this service. That's this ministry. That's this work. The reason the world exists, because he upholds it by the word of his power. The reason you will continue on in sanctification is because of the word of Christ. He is engaging in that ministry. And again, another reason to let anxiety flee and come to Christ and find your trust in him. I'll read this section for you. You don't have to turn. 
It's found in Luke chapter 22. You can write it down and look it up in context, but I just wanted to read a snippet of a story that you remember from the Gospels in Luke 22. You remember Peter, a follower of Christ, needed great strength in that day because, well, Christ was about to to die. And they were against him. And Peter, being a follower of Christ, meant, well, they would be against him as well. And you know the rest of the story. Peter does deny Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells him, you're, you're, you're even going to do this in your life. But you're not going to utterly fail. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas had all the religious trappings right on the outside. In fact, he had so much of that that people really thought of him as the most righteous among them. When Jesus exclaimed that someone would betray them, Judas was last on the list. They might think of Peter or Simon, the zealot, Matthew maybe, but not Judas. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus reminds Peter of his ministry, his work. He says, Simon, Simon, he, he's getting his attention and telling him this is really important. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And beloved, can I tell you this? If you come to Christ, if you follow Christ, I can assure you there is an adversary against you. He roars like a lion. He seeks to devour you. He seeks to deceive you by all that is around you. In the world, in the flesh, it is satanic. He's demanded to have you. What is he going to do with you? Destroy you. That's the point. But here is the mark that I want you to hear from verse 32, but Jesus says this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. I like for you to pray for me, and I covet your prayers. We pray for one another all the time. I pray for you. I pray for your children, and we should pray. But never miss this. If you're in Christ, you have someone that is holy, innocent, unstained, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted at the very throne of God that is praying for you. I can't believe it. This is an unbelievable work of Christ. 
His ministry on your behalf, which continues now, he functions in his priestly role. <coughs> a priest would offer up prayers. That's the image, right? This is part of their responsibilities and duties. Here you have God praying for you that your faith wouldn't fail. If you remain in Christ, that's why you remain in Christ. It's the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. It isn't because, oh, I'm really good person. I, I'm really accomplished. I'm smarter than everybody else. No, you're not. You're not smarter than the devil who would deceive you and destroy you. And if there is any sense of repentance and return to Christ, it's because of Jesus Christ. And I'll just finish this phrase out. Jesus says, I prayed for you, you speaking to Simon Peter. And he says, and, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. <laughs> Say, Jesus Christ knew he was going to fail, but not utterly, because he was interceding for him. He knew that he would turn. What's the turn? Okay, you fail, but you're going to repent. Why are you going to repent? Because Jesus prayed for him. And he prays for everyone who is in Christ. That's the point of his work as a mediator after the order of Melchizedek forever. He just doesn't function in his intercessory role here on earth this continues in heaven. John Owen looked at this concept, and I'll give you a summary statement of Jesus in his current position from him. Owen would say, Having declared the glory and dignity which he is exalted unto as sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, what can be farther expected from him? And that's normally how we often think. There he lives, eternally happy and in the enjoyment of his own blessedness and glory. Is it not reasonable? It should be so after all the hardships and miseries which he, being the Son of God, underwent in this world. Who can expect that he should any longer condescend unto his office and duty? Neither generally have men or any other thoughts concerning him. But there, but where then would lie the advantage of the church in his exaltation, which the apostle designs in an especial manner to demonstrate? The, the point of him being on the heavenly throne as a one in authority and one who is also an advocate for his people, that that's the point, and he will continue that. God, a transcendent God, is imminent with his people. God with us, the hope of glory. Back to our text in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 3. It's a better seat, throne of glory. But it's a better sacrifice, as I've already alluded to. Notice verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is, thus, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. 
His point here is to talk about this offering. If you're going to be a priest, you're going to have to offer something. Sacrifices and gifts are entered here. It says it must be offered. The priest's work, the symbolic of Christ under the Aaronic priesthood, they made a sacrifice. But that sacrifice had to be then offered. That's his point that he's making here. The priest not only had to sacrifice, but he had to bring that before the very throne of God symbolically in the most holy place and offer it on the very throne. We've talked about that before. This is the symbolic presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant. It's the symbolic throne of God that has angels on either side praising His majestic glory. That's the ritual. But here he's pointing to there is a reality that corresponds. Just as the priest had to bring in the sacrifice, that is, had to actually offer it, Jesus has to be exalted to the throne because, in reality, he does bring a true sacrifice. This sacrifice is of himself. It is the blood of Christ. Turn over to the next chapter, chapter 9. And he's going to elaborate this, 9 and 10. But here we have it in 9. For if the blood of goats, I'm at verse 13, 9, 13. Where the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And here it is, verse 14. How much more, read better in that sense. How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify your conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. This sacrifice must be offered, and the sacrifice in and of itself actually accomplishes the atonement for sin. We sing a lot of songs that speak of the blood of Christ. That's the picture. That's the symbol. That blood being offered here, it is in reality Christ's blood who truly died. We sing songs like, nothing but the blood. Are you washed in the blood? There's power in the blood. Even at, at the cross, it contains the line, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let, my hi- let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. And one of my favorites, there is a fountain filled with blood. Some people don't like that terminology. It sounds too gruesome, if you will. Sounds kind of morbid 
to talk about the blood of Christ. So, so why, why do we include it? And there's many more hymns. Those are just a selection. We include it in some of these hymns that we're familiar with. Because sin is awful. That's why. And it will take this sacrifice of Christ to atone for our sin. It will take death from the very beginning, and death is not pleasing. It's awful. I hate death, don't you? I hate disease. I hate death. All of it is ultimately a result of sin. But Christ atoned for that, and Peter would put it this way in his epistle. I'll read it for you. (coughs) You can stay in Hebrews. We'll look at chapter 10 in a second. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifested in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. (coughs) The glory is the exaltation, that actual offering of that atonement in, in the very throne of heaven. It is a better sacrifice. Nothing else compares. Nothing else could compare. What else could come before and what else could come after all that came before only pointed to this the preacher will elaborate in chapter 10 if you're there in hebrews we'll get into this later but this is the direction that he's setting this up for and he'll get into chapter 10 and verse 11 repeating the same idea he says in verse 11 of chapter 10 every priest stands daily at his service Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, and this is what I want you to know, which can never take away sins. They were never intended to take away sins. They were always a ritual. Those that are saved, if you will, those who are redeemed in the Old Testament are redeemed in the same way that they are now, They just simply look forward to a sacrifice that would come. We look backward to a sacrifice that has come. It has been foreordained from the foundation of the world, Christ, a lamb slain. And all of this was created, this ritual was created to picture the reality that God had promised and would take place in time. It can never take away sin. That is the ritual. So why would you go back to that? Why would you go to anything other than Christ? Because nothing else can take away sin. But notice this, verse 12 of chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. By the way, this this is why we don't represent Christ's sacrifice in the Eucharist every worship service. It can't. There's a single sacrifice. And we don't keep pointing to it that way. We do this in remembrance of him. This is why we have communion. 
And Christ takes this, this cup and blesses it. He takes the bread and blesses it. He says, do this in what? In remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? That reality. That's the ritual that we engage in, is looking backwards then <coughs> to that reality. He sits down at the right hand of God. It's repeated again. And what is he doing? Verse 13, waiting. God is patiently waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Nothing else to be done, you see. He's already accomplished. He's already done all that needs to be done. What is he waiting for? He's waiting till his bride is complete. Till the last one says Jesus is Lord and then he's done. And then will come the end. And death will be destroyed. Indeed, disease will be taken care of. Any kind of failing and destruction will be done away with by Christ. Because he will put all of his enemies in time at his foot. Because right now, they already are. He is conquered. Because, verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctified just means be set apart and made holy. It will be accomplished. Why will it be accomplished? Because this priest continues forever. He is continually mediating on the behalf of his people, even in the throne room of God. But he must go there. And that's why he's there. That offering must be made, and he has made it. So it points not only to this resurrection, which Christ's body could not be defiled or destroyed. So he rises, but it also anticipates the necessity of the ascension into the exaltation of glory to accomplish this very thing in this real place, Heaven itself, which all of the rituals pointed to. So when you see Christ ascending to heaven, that's the imagery that you have. It is accomplished. It's finished. He sits down at the seat of the majesty on high. And so what is he doing? Ministering to his people. And he gives gifts. (coughs) Back to our text in verse 3. It's not only the sacrifice, but it says it's gifts. The Levitical priests offered many other offerings. And most of those other offerings, other than the atonement, sacrifice, had to do with commitments and just blessings. Thanksgiving, praises, because of gifts given to them. The point of the giving here is, imagine this is the one who is in authority on the throne of God, and he has made a single sacrifice. That sacrifice has been offered. That atonement has been made, but there's something else coming. Maybe you can think of it as this. Blessing, does that help? That's the gifts. His goodness. Every good gift comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. 
It comes down from the Father of light, from whom there is no variation or shadow. In other words, he doesn't change his mind because he can't. James would tell us in James 1 and verse 7. So when you go to pray, Jesus taught us how to pray. Do you remember? Give us this day our daily bread. He's not talking about a sandwich. He's talking about the good things of life, the sustenance, the very core of it, and every aspect in between. This is how we pray. All good gifts and all good blessings come from God, and we do pray for that. That is his work and ministry. Engaged right now, your great high priest, you can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask for a good gift. You know one of the good gifts, by the way, just aside to point to? Continue to pray for the salvation of your children or the little ones in here. That's a good gift. I know some folks that don't have that good gift. And it's a great burden, isn't it? Continue to pray. Never give up. Continue to, to knock on that door and ask for that good gift. I can't think of one better. Pray for the sanctification of those that you care and love, love that they might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Get, all that comes from Him. It isn't by happenstance. And the, and the blessings that you have in life, the better than deserved, which is always and often, stop and thank God for it, and particularly Jesus Christ, who in this mediatorial work overflows in his grace and his abundance more than you can imagine. Sometimes you just got to stop and, th- and, and think about it for a minute. Oh, yes, what has he given me? What, what do I deserve? Oh, I don't get that, <laughs> what I really deserve. I can't getting those things that I don't deserve. And guess where it comes from? Jesus Christ, our mediator. Well, I'll end on this, hopefully, finally, in verse 4 and 5, to the degree that I can. I'm not sure I'll make it through, but at least we'll introduce this. And that's this third aspect. Not only is it seated on the throne of high, which I've elaborated some, his sacrifice and gifts, but also... His better service, back to our text in verses 4 and 5. Notice what, he, what he's saying. It, it can be um, difficult to follow to some degree. We'll see if we can explain it. In verse 4, he says, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. He's talking about his service, right? He wouldn't be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The contrast is an earthly priest versus a heavenly priest. He, he, he wasn't an earthly priest in that sense. He wasn't of the Levitical order. He didn't go into the temple and start offering sacrifices because all of those were symbolic. That's not what he was ultimately doing. In, instead, he is the heavenly priest who continues forever, as we've noted in chapter 7 and verse 25. He's a heavenly priest who continues to make intercession on the behalf of his people. Earthly priests would die. He lives forever. He, and upon his resurrection, he sends into heaven and is there on that throne eternally on our behalf. 
This earthly religious system had many priests. They were of the tribe of Levi, if you remember. What tribe was Jesus? Judah. So he wasn't qualified in that sense to serve under the Mosaic Covenant. He would establish a new covenant, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. That wasn't his attention to to continue that. Instead, from the very beginning, he was after a different order. The order, remember, of Melchizedek, prophesied by David in Psalm 110.4. Look at verse 5 then. What, What was all of that about? If Jesus wasn't of that tribe, he wasn't of that order, and yet he is a priest? Because verse 5 explains it. Those things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. These rituals pointed to the reality. They were were installed and established by God on purpose to point to the reality that is Jesus Christ. These visible objects and things pointed to something that is not seen, invisible, that is heavenly. That's the point. And God condescends to provide those kinds of symbols to point to that true reality. Notice verse 5 <coughs> and the careful aspect of this. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain." Here, God, in setting up these symbols, I I don't mean to demean them, they're very important. When God instructs how things are to be practiced, that is, religious practices, they're not done in an arbitrary way. And here, particularly, they were meticulously detailed. And if you've tried to read through the Bible and you get to the book of Leviticus, oftentimes we slow down a little bit. Because there's a lot of detail there, isn't it? It's a lot of technical aspects there. That detail is there because those uh, symbols point to the very substance of Jesus Christ. Remember when the apostles would go about preaching Christ, him crucified, rising again... (coughs) What scriptures did they use? The Old Testament. All of this that was written beforehand, they pointed to and said, these things speak of Christ. And if you're not sure, I'll just quote Jesus for you. I think that's a good authority. John 5, 46, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. All of those details, and we may not be able to extrapolate each one to, to a minute idea. I don't think that's the point. In general, every one of those were written to point to Jesus Christ. All of these religious practices were ordered to point to Jesus Christ. It is Christ, then, who is the head and authority of all things, including his church right here. You know who's the charge? Jesus Christ. It's his. This is his body. It's the 
fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. I have time to do this last verse, I think. I just want to mention one other thing then based on that. And I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Because it's not just the Hebrews who were tempted to engage in rituals that might have some purpose at time. But mankind in general has a tendency to make up their own religion. And going back to Judaism is simply making up your own religion. And Paul's going to address this to the church at Colossae in chapter 2, and I'll just begin at verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no man then pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. What's he pointing at? He's pointing at the law that was written, the ritual that was meant to point to the reality. He says, verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I've constantly said shadow and substance. I didn't make it up. Here it is. That, that's the point. That they had a purpose, but they pointed to Christ alone. And so on that basis then, and people go further, and that's what he's getting into here, potential heresies that will soon de- uh, develop, such as Gnosticism and so forth, He says, let no one then disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going in detail about visions and and puffed up about without reason by a sensuous mind and holding fast to the head from which the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he gives the example. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used. According to, note this, human precepts and teachings. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting what? Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. What will stop it? Christ. The Holy Spirit working in your heart. It isn't, it isn't just these religious engagements and practices and so forth. We're not suggesting that you, you can't engage in some, when we have some aspects of ritual which we engage in, but the point is to look to the reality. Look to Christ and not a self-made, man-made religion because Christ is better. He is on a better seat, the throne of glory. It's a better sacrifice, his own blood, and a better service. It is Christ who ministers constantly to his people even now. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you give us insight into your holy word. May we hear and heed the words of Christ this day. 
I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you a moment now to, to respond to Christ in any way you've heard from him today. Uh, let me give you a moment. Take a moment now. thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your faithfulness. You're a good, great, and glorious God. And thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for loving us undeservedly. And thank you for continuing to minister on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord, whoever lives to make intercession for us. May we constantly come boldly before your throne of grace to find help in our time of need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jerry's on vacation today, so it's left up to me, and I have a plan. Let's stand together, and if you have, and I'll invite Blake to come up here. I told him I might tag him. You know, I really enjoyed this Psalm 92. I hope you did. Blake, thanks also for the introduction to it and explaining it. it. It is a good thing for us to sing the praises to God and particularly from his divine inspired word. The, the tune that you put with it makes it easy for us to sing, and I really enjoyed it. Would you like to sing this together with us one more time? Blake, come on up and help lead us. We'll just sing through this. We'll sing the whole thing. And if you need to go, go ahead. Otherwise, when we finish, you can then be dismissed. Let's sing together.